Hello, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Slow, and here as always with Luke Savage. Hey guys. We always start with, you know, some uh, some rip from the headlines. Heady topics. You know, uh, stuff, what, what's going on in the news. And, you know, you really have to keep up with the politics, not only to understand it, but also to even say it, you know. And some of us, you know, it's hard, it's hard keeping up on the treadwheel. And I just think... <laughs> Why can't we just have like a fun intro sometimes? You know, just talking about the, the, the daily struggles that unite us all, the kind of funny, weird things that we can all relate to. This is Will's way of telling uh, me and the listenership that he does not want to talk about Brexit or Macron. Like, you know, uh, you ever notice <laughs> that when you go to the airport, the the food that they sell at the at the restaurant at the airport, it's always so much more expensive than the food anywhere else. <laughs> What's the deal with that? Why why is that? Like you go to you go to the bread aisle at, at the supermarket <laughs> and you got you got the the one bread and you got the other bread it's the whole wheat and it's the white and it's like what's the difference between the whole wheat and the white? And this one the expiry date. How how do they get the expiry date? <laughs> are they are they talking to the bread and saying this is does the bread tell them when the bread expires? And every day at the supermarket is is a Horrible idea. Do you ever have experiences like Sitting this? in on the third mic today is, is our is our new co-host, a uh, '90s comedian. Do you ever have a d- difficult, d- you know, cra- crazy the, the weird things that we all we all notice and unite us all? But it takes a guy like a guy like us to to pinpoint them for for us all. Like, what happens to that extra sock that you put in the sock dryer and you can't find it? Where does the sock go? Uh, a, a baker's dozen? Why not a baker's... Tr- <laughs> you, know, you know what? Very good question. This is just an example of the sorts of, you know, like... This like is what our conversations things. are, you know, like you guys hear, if you listen to Michael and a us... A highly edited version of what we talk about. You hear, you hear a version of us which is articulate, a version which is erudite, very much concerned with... The heady business of our of our age, but this is actually just what Will and my conversations are like. When... Well, actually, the personal is political, <laughs> so that's what I've got to talk about this week. It really hasn't been that long since we last recorded the episode, and I'm sorry, there are only so many things we do in a week. It's you know, hard to keep the to keep the content we, coming. We did something. Uh, we did something recently. We hadn't done a while, which is we just hung out and didn't record a podcast, mm. which I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed because. I mean, I guess we've maybe talked about this before, but before Will and I, you know, monetized our friendship, you know, before we just started recording our conversations and turning that into a podcast, uh, we used to just get together and watch movies. Mm-hmm. And we watched uh, The Thin Red Line, didn't we? Good film. I had actually never seen The Thin Red Line before. It was, I think, one of the real glaring gaps mm-hmm. uh, in my in my film-going life. And I thought it was a very beautiful movie. I, I realize I'm coming to this as if I'm like the first person planting a flag on the moon. I'm sure whatever points I'm about to make are, have been made a million times over the last 20 years. But I don't know how, I, like, I don't know how, what percentage of the listeners has like seen a Terrence Malick film. I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, one of the things I liked about it was, you know, you have these battle scenes and the soldiers are just one part of the frame. 
they are on this island and the island is so it's corny to say the island is much as much of a character as they are mm-hmm. but really you know the island surrounds them the war is just one part of what we're seeing in the movie they're just part of nature the yeah. film is about what does it look like when nature goes to war with itself and that's fundamentally what this is and like these soldiers they're fighting you know you see their heads popping up in the grass but the grass is still flowing in the wind, you know, and there are animals who are circulating in this nature because the grass is busy. The grass has its own drama that's going on, you know? You know the shot that really sticks in my mind and I find I- very I'm pretty upsetting. sure I know what it is, but go ahead. It's the one where um, when they're trying to storm the hill, you know, they're under heavy fire and there's just this shot of like a little bird that's yes. been wounded and it's just crawling through the grass yeah that is so powerful how many war movies would linger on that shot mm-hmm. you know I, I mean it's it's one of the only war movies i can think of where man does not totally dominate mm-hmm. the landscape yeah it's um i mean i only saw saving private ryan once but you know fuck fuck that movie i've never seen saving private ryan You've seen like the first 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I saw the first 20 minutes in history class, actually. Because <laughs> what it is, is it means basically an incredibly, you know, technically adept, you know, impressive opening 20 minutes and then just the most generic Steven Spielberg kind of, you know, Band of Brothers war movie bullshit. I mean, I'm sure as an action movie, it's fine, but it, does, it doesn't have anything to say. Well, it has plenty to say. Uh, just, uh, the, the troops are, are, are beautiful boys. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it. I'm sure, I'm sure it's wonderful. Well, it's kind of like all of them are different archetypes. They all have a fatal flaw, you know, like Vin Diesel's character. He gets killed because he's too... He's, he's too, too much of an alpha? He's too alpha. Yeah. And then there's one guy that gets killed because he writes poetry and he's too much of... Like, the implication is that he's like a sissy. Right. And um, so the if absolute... I, if I'm remembering correctly. The absolute median American, the most average yeah. of all Americans, is Tom Hanks. That's right. Right. And that, you know, I really hate Tom Hanks. <laughs> I think he's a, an absolute menace to society. <laughs> and, you know, I know people are listening and saying, oh, Tom Hanks. Well, how could you hate Tom Hanks? He's a, he's, he's a wonderful, beautiful man who represents America. No, he doesn't. He's a, he's a fucking corporate shell. You know, he's a man who just steamrolls culture with his cloying likability. Did, did you see the Did you see the uh, the, the Disney movie that he saving was Mr. Banks? Yeah. No, I boycotted it, <laughs> it because was... I was so offended by the story uh-huh. that it's the Disney Corporation makes this movie about itself <laughs> destroying an independent artist, <laughs> and and it's supposed to be an inspirational story. Yeah, uh, I, that's just one example of why Tom Hanks is a bad man. The, Tom Hanks, one of the most powerful men in the world. And this is the sort of movie he chooses to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next year, he's in a biopic about Fred Rogers. He's he's playing Fred Rogers in a movie. That's so obvious. And you know, and yeah, and I hate it's an it. obvious move. And it's as it's as if he's this corporation that's like buying up old neighborhoods. Yeah, and gentrifying, gentrifying them. them. Yeah. It's like he bought Mister Rogers. Mm-hmm. And, and he's grafted Mr. Rogers onto himself to mm-hmm. you fuel his own likability. It is interesting how Hollywood, you know, Tom Hanks is, you know, one of the instruments by which Hollywood kind of cannibalizes these different pieces of, of authentic culture and it turns them into yeah. codified Americana, yeah. which is the sort of corporate approved version. And it annoys me with Mr. Rogers in particular because the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Show is a genuinely eccentric mm-hmm. thing. I mean, there is no other show like it. Mm. It is how many shows exist where this this strange man will just meditate for a minute on screen and he'll he'll tell the child viewer to just just rest with him for a minute. 
you know, a minute of dead air on TV. You know, this is the kind of weird, authentic thing that Tom Hanks is not. (laughs) And I hate him. (laughs) And you said we would have nothing to talk about. Um, Some weeks ago, we did an episode on two political films by Jean-Luc Godard. And um, I might have mentioned then that the very abstract, you know, phase of Godard's work where he's heavily concerned with, you know, creating a Marxist cinema... That was kind of my entry point into him. So so much so that I didn't actually watch the fun French New Wave ones. So mm-hmm. I recently saw Breathless for the first time. I recently saw Vive Savi uh, just, just the other night. And um, I've been watching because this Bergman box set came out. And because it's the Bergman centenary, Bergman's my favorite director. And I've been watching all these all these Bergman films. It's maybe because I've never seen these some of these films from the early French New Wave before. But maybe also just because I've been immersed in this kind of incredibly austere often bleak bergman cinematic universe and you know i've just had such fun with these early godard movies yeah um, because they're they're so uh they're so vibrant and and there's so much going on in them but i was saying to you you know i've had two kind of somewhat contradictory conflicting reactions to the early godard because on the one hand i'll see things and i'll think to myself oh that's where that came from sure you know you know, like something uh, really superficial that I noticed was, you know, Uma Thurman, her character, her haircut in Pulp Fiction totally comes from Anna Karina in Vive Savi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all these things like that. But then also, I feel like as good at, at doing this as Godard so obviously was, you know, that kind of af- affected quality uh, in cinema, which, you know, works in, in his movies. You know, watching these movies, I think imagine the generations of really annoying like film school people yeah. that this is like empowered and like given license to <laughs> and imagine imagine like the early 2000s indie movies that you know were derivative of this and very bad as a result yeah i mean watching godard in the 60s must have been so exciting because you know he was part of that first generation of filmmakers who consciously made the medium itself the subject of their work Mm. and they came at a point when there had been enough film history that that was viable but somebody like Godard was also so much in conversation with the political moment of his time and he also had such an enormous frame of reference for all the arts whether it's visual art or literature or or music or what have you Something like Pulp Fiction is a movie that's really made by somebody whose primary frame of reference is movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not he's not that interested, I think, in the world surrounding he, the movies. He has not read Freud or, mm-hmm. or Marx. No. It's interesting that you're watching Godard the same time that you're watching Bergman. Both, you know, masters of the form, but they're so different. Bergman's obviously a master, but he's not at all interested in making the medium itself the subject of his movies. He's really interested in that heavy-duty life-death relationship mm-hmm. stuff. Well, and I know that in in, uh, in the film world, there was kind of a backlash to the auteurism of the early 1960s, which culminated, I guess, partly in those those big American blockbuster films of the you know late 70s and mm-hmm. early 80s, where you know people felt that um, auteurism kind of became a parody of itself and that 
you know, films had become far, like they become too reflective and too, directors had too much freedom. That's right. Yeah. And I guess in retrospect, you know, like when you watch some of those later Godard movies where they just don't make any sense at all, <laughs> it's pretty easy to convince yourself that there's something to that. But I mean, imagine if we lived in a world where people were making kind of bold, radical art like that, how exciting that would be. It would be exciting. And, and instead, uh... people want you to believe that like, <laughs> You know, the heirs to, like, George Lucas, that's what's exciting. Uh, and I love Late Godard. I also kind of yeah. hate it. I mean, you know, there's, there's. I feel like as a cinephile, the only acceptable relationship to have with Godard is a love-hate relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, since this podcast is, you know, a time capsule, people will be listening to it 50 years from now trying to figure out what's happening in the world. They, they'll want to know, you know, what, yeah, what, where was the culture at? And, uh, and Michael and us will be their guide. Why don't we talk a little bit about Brexit? It was a big day for the old Brexit, you know, the old, <laughs> they, they were just about to, they have, they have these big, I'm not sure if, if our North American listeners understand this, but they have these, these big hooks that connect the British Isles to Europe. Oh my God. There's a, and there's a big like iron rope and they had these big like shears that were going to cut the rope today and it was going to get cast adrift into the sea. But it looks like they didn't quite have enough votes in Parliament so Theresa May, who is the prime minister, strong and steady leadership, uh, she's delaying the vote for a little bit. So the guys with the big shears, they've been, they went home for the night and they might be back tomorrow. But for the time being, it is still physically connected to, to continental <laughs> Europe. That's the situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, you obviously know a lot more about, you know, British politics and, and just that whole... Um, you know, and I don't think you should duel an unarmed man. So let's <laughs> let's let's leave it at that. We did watch a, a movie this week. Uh, you know, we're, we're not just here to talk about uh, Will's hatred of Tom Hanks and my recently discovered love of the French New Wave. We watched a quintessentially Michael and us artifact, which I, I know we've got a number of requests for. Incredible that we just keep. Every couple of weeks, there's another one that just seems like, why haven't we done this before? Yeah, and I want to I want to say thanks so much to everybody. You know, we've gotten so many requests. There's a very lively discussion that's ongoing on the Patreon. We read all those suggestions. We look at them. We read all the comments. If we haven't gotten to your movie yet, don't worry. I'm sure we'll do it eventually. The ideas are the fuel that keeps the podcast going, so uh, we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, we got to one of those today. Jesus Camp. This is a sick old world. Kids, you gotta change things. Boys and girls can change the world? Absolutely. I pledge to the Christian flag. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who love Jesus and people who don't. Read the word of the Lord! Where should we be putting our focus? I'll tell you where our enemies are putting it. They're putting it on the kids. How long have you been a Christian? At five, I got saved. Yeah? Because I just wanted more of life. You go into Palestine and they're taking their kids to camps like we take our kids to Bible camps and they're putting hand grenades in their hands. I think most people have probably seen it and know a bit about it, Will, but uh, what, what are the Coles notes for this movie? This movie was released in 2000. This podcast now sponsored by Coles. This movie was released in 2006 during George W. Bush's victory lap of a second term. 
It takes the temperature of the evangelical Christian movement that was on everybody's mind in the Bush era by focusing in on one particular ministry, which is the Kids in Ministry International. The funnest one there is. Run by one Becky Fisher, who also runs a summer camp for Christian youth called the Kids on Fire School Ministry, (laughs) which reminds me of in the South Park movie, the Terrence and Phillip movie, Asses on Fire. It's actually Asses of Fire. Asses of Fire. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. All right. Well, stupid point shouldn't have raised. Yeah, I mean, you, you may know about Brexit, but I <laughs> this summer camp takes place in Devil's Lake, North Dakota, and it is very consciously run by Becky Fisher as a indoctrination camp. She she takes a lot of inspiration from radical Islam. I mean, she she actually says, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she looks at them admiringly, like, look at look at they they wake their kids up at nine a.m. and they're in bed at midnight, and it's just indoctrination all day long. And we should be doing that. We have truth, you know. Yeah, she has she has like this uh, very Sam Harris view of what the Middle East is like, where it's just where just everybody is at the mosque all the time, and you know everybody just chants death to America like twelve times a day. And we need to do that, but the other way around. Those news clips you see of like Al Qaeda people like on a jungle gym like <laughs> training. So that is that all over. She's like, we need to do that. Yeah. Um. And and she does. It focuses on a couple of kids ages, I want to say like 9 to 12. Uh, In particular, I guess the hero of the story is Levi. Yeah, he's my favorite character. He's got a little uh, rat tail. Yeah, to me, honestly, his haircut is kind of proof that God doesn't intervene in daily life because that is an injustice that no no just God would permit. And he's... uh, you know, a real true believer. He said that he got saved when he was five years old because he, you know, just wanted more from life. And he, he's my favorite character because of all the children. So one thing that strikes you with the children of this movie is they're surprisingly articulate and they have a remarkable strength of conviction despite their young age, because I guess they've been it's you been know, drilled into them. Yeah, right? and they and they've really, you know, they've had kind of a an epistemological closure imposed on them from early in life. You know, a lot of them are homeschooled. It's not clear how many of them kind of own TVs at, at home. Um, there's a lot of uh, censorship about what they're allowed to. Re- it sort of seems like their entertainment. Um, and actually, I I, uh, I had an evangelical friend growing up, and he uh, he just just for like. I don't know, a couple of years, but he had a complicated system in place at his house that determined what he was allowed to watch and what he wasn't. And like, if he wanted to watch a movie, his dad actually had to watch it in its entirety first. His dad was an actual, wow. was like a missionary. And most of his entertainment, you know, because it was obviously very kind of arduous for his dad to watch. Uh, I remember one of the movies he was allowed to watch for some reason was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Um, He's allowed to uh, watch a, a film that depicts the Greek Orthodox Church. I, I guess so. Okay. Um, but so most of his entertainment, though, was was just kind of Bible themed, you know, like it was entertaining stories, but all set kind of within the broader, you know, the Bible extended universe. Sure. You know, so Eli, who's who's my favorite character, though, you know, he's he, I think, actually a little bit maybe exposes the flaw in this uh, in this whole system, because it is it is very dynamic. I mean, it, it is taking these kids from a young age and drilling into them this elaborate, soul-destroying, soul-crushing, you know, psychological infrastructure. All of these emotional tools of uh, repression and such. They really frighten the kids. They scare the the hell out of the kids. And I think in the process, they sort of 
quash their individualism, what they get out of that is they get a very strong group identity, which is what makes the evangelical movement so lethal uh, in the political sphere. But this Eli kid, I mean, he seems very thoughtful and maybe a, a little smarter than he should be. You know, we see him preaching a number of times. And I think that the you get the sense that some of the um, adults in the movie are actually a little bit threatened by him. Hmm. because He's he, quite charismatic, isn't he's, he? He's a charismatic... Yeah. He's about as charismatic as like a nine-year-old can be. And I think he's more charismatic than the lady who, who runs the camp. I mean, how, how many nine-year-olds did you know when you were nine or, I don't know, or are acquainted with now who could go up in front of hundreds of people at a church and yeah. just talk for, yeah, for you like know, 15 or 20 Full Jimmy minutes. Swagger style. Yeah, yeah and he, yeah. he does it with tremendous, you know, confidence. And there's a scene later where we, where we see him meet uh, Ted Haggard, who's one of these big megachurch guys. And, you know, Haggard is actually a little bit condescending towards him. And yeah. I, I almost wondered if, is Haggard see him as competition? Haggard is such a dick. He's so he? slimy. Well, he says something to the kid. Oh, well, you know, are, you preach a lot, eh? Well, are they reacting to you because you're you're a cute kid or, or is it the content? And as you observed while we were watching it, what content does Ted Haggard have? His sermons are just, you, you got to have principles in your life. Mm-hmm. And it, it's about as deep as that. Oh, and you got to support the Supreme Court justice nominee. Right, right. I think one of the things that's striking to me about the sermons we hear in the in the film is how many of them are concerned with, like, not with actually giving people anything that's particularly useful in their daily lives, but just uh, schooling them in how they can best further the evangelical cause in general. I mean, there's this complicated story to be told about how kind of individualism and collectivism function symbiotically in this type of religious environment because you know on the one hand they're all they're all encouraged to believe they have a personal relationship with god right and god is their individual savior but then on the other hand that seems to be used to kind of foster this extreme group think and you know this kind of rallying around just like a few core talking points and this really radical discouragement of individuality i think one of the reasons we were interested in watching this movie is because evangelical Christianity was the big boogeyman for liberals during the Bush era. And I think it's kind of faded from view in recent years. It's been replaced by a succession of other boogeymen, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Tea Party or Gamergate or the alt-right. And, you know, we all know that evangelical Christians support Trump overwhelmingly, but we don't talk about them the same way that we talk about them during the Bush era. Because evangelicals supported Bush and because both were sort of perceived as this like southern hillbilly class. Yeah. It sort of gave people license to kind of hate all the red states, you know? Right. And when we, and we, we explored that, I guess, when we way back when we talked about religious, religious, whatever we settled on. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. A lot of people have asked, well, you know, how can evangelical Christians support George W. Bush? How can they support Donald Trump? Two people whose affects and whose kind of public personas are as different as George W. Bush and Donald Trump putting aside their politics. I don't even know how different their affects and personas are. I, I know the point you're making, but... I, I guess they're both a little a little vulgar. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of think it's that... It's a matter of degree, it's, Yeah, that's, think? that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, I agree with that. But people ask, how can they support those people? And when we hear the sermons in this movie... The sermons are mostly free of substance. They're kind of like Tony Robbins self-help guru shit Mm -hmm. sprinkled with a little bit of guilt. That's right. And it's very free. It doesn't have a lot of intellectual rigor to it. 
certainly not not as much intellectual rigor as even you know catholicism or mainline protestantism yeah um and so it can be a sponge for anything right it's both very dynamic in the kinds of people it can recruit uh, you know pentecostalism i think is pretty big in in africa it's done a lot of outreach there and a lot of uh because it's so vague, right? It's vague in the sense that it could be compatible with lots of different kinds of people and malleable to different cultures, but it's rigorously structured in certain ways such that it can form the basis for a very strong, you know, collective identification. And I think that's what where it draws its strength. And there's a strong <clears throat> us versus them uh-huh. dynamic. And I, you know, that that comes through in at, at the end of the film when you hear uh you hear one of these big sermons and I think the language of majoritarianism is very it was it really stood out to me. So, you know, uh the phrase of the moral majority obviously comes to mind, but you know, they kind of use this uh the whoever the preacher is it might be Haggard or it might be someone else we just see that you hear them as a disembodied voice from off screen you know saying you know majority of America Americans are conservatives you know blah 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 the kind of rhetoric of we are the majority I think is something that uh American liberalism has been very bad at at responding to that type of mm-hmm. type of rhetoric in either a secular or a religious manner because um liberalism rhetorically you know one of my one of my big complaints about it right is how broad and inclusive um, it is to the point where there's no there's no real identity that's being appealed to at all, right? I mean, there are there are no red states and blue states; they're only the United States. It's the broadest unity imaginable, but it's often not very good at forging a collective identity that's that's more robust, you know. Which is kind of why uh, it would be nice if liberals would talk about you know the working class once in a while or something <laughs> like that. In the movie, we see, you know, a homeschooled kid being taught about how climate change isn't real. That's amazing. There's just like talking points that they, I mean, this is why these people have the courts, seriously. I mean, you think, well, what does that have to do with evangelical Christianity? But like, what doesn't it have to do with evangelical Christianity? There's no there there, Mm -hmm. right? All it's really about is serving God, whatever God is, and serving God's agenda, whatever that agenda is. And and reproducing, like just constantly reaffirming and reproducing the group identity. When we see the megachurch, it's kind of indistinguishable from the kids camp. It's mm-hmm. just like summer camp for it's kind of bigger. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a little the church is a little more expensive. You know, the music is maybe slightly more adult, but it's pretty it's honestly pretty goofy. The sound of sort of Christian rock and pop music is that's like a level of camp that I have or like can't maybe camp's not the right word, but it's kitsch. Kitsch, yeah. yeah. There's something, yeah, kitsch is the right word. There's something about it that I just find um, I mean, oh, there it are, just makes me cringe. There are fewer, Ugh. there are very few things like that, and like the musical Hamilton are two things that I basically <laughs> cannot listen to for more than ten or fifteen seconds. You know, around this time when liberals saw Jesus Camp, the thing that everybody who was a liberal would say about Jesus Camp was that it's so scary, mm-hmm. and, and people would leave Jesus Camp thinking, "Well, how do we?" How do we beat this? Mm. They've got 25 to 100 million people, depending on who's doing the count, right, uh, right. who believe in this and they're going to vote Republican. And how do we defeat that? Mm. Um, not through a broad pro-working class agenda. That's for darn tootin'. Yeah. Not by running on Medicare for all. Well, there was this idea in the mid 2000s, whether it's, you know, any of your new atheist friends. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot, which is that we just, if we can get them to stop being Christians, then they'll vote Democrat. That was the sort of atheist equivalent of like this liberal thing of like, the problem is, is just that people have the bad facts. Yeah. 
So you just you got to give them the good the good facts. Yeah, you got to do a, a religious or a, you know a counter religious version of what uh, you know Air America did. So you know what uh, the O Franken factor did with such lethal effectiveness, which is you just got to correct the damn facts. Obviously, what the Christians need to do is they need to read the Old Testament like Ricky Gervais does, <laughs> and they and they gotta say, oh oh, he created the earth in seven days. I oh uh, oh, does it very logical? Does it? Ooh, yeah, that that'll get him. Oh, made a woman out of a rib. Oi. Well, one of the great, uh, you know, scribes of modern America, a friend of the show, Aaron Sorkin, actually uh, actually did give us a demonstration of how to beat the evangelicals at their own game. Should we give that a listen? Uh, let's do it. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits. Oh, owned. (laughs) Got him. (laughs) And after that, the evangelical movement dissolved. (laughs) And was never heard from again. Although in a way it did dissolve, because we haven't really heard much from the evangelical movement lately, have uh-huh. we? They've all become uh, tea partiers and gamer gators and uh, alt-rights. And uh, and also still one of the most robust and organized constituencies in, <laughs> in the United States. The Guardian eventually followed up uh, on the 10th anniversary of the film with some of the, the central characters. We'll do our, our Where Are They Now you know, segment in a sec, but... It's a quote from the filmmaker, which I think it affirms one of my concerns with the. I think it's. A, I think the film is good. I think it's a good. You know, as a film, it's a good little document of of this camp and of a cultural milieu that probably, when the movie was made, a lot of kind of blue state liberals had just never seen inside one of these churches. You know, and honestly, like, not that I'm above that. This, when, when I watched this movie when it came out, that was probably you know the first time I'd ever seen that and and the the mega church scene in Borat were probably two of the first times. It's also just interesting seeing the sort of emotional manipulation tactics they use on these kids. Mm -hmm. You know, the scene where that guy gets them to sort of pledge allegiance to fighting abortion 
it's overwhelming. You can imagine being a kid and being tasked with this seemingly impossible task. Yeah, and there's know. and there's that whole bit where they where they're telling the kids, you know, the the devil lives everywhere, and uh, a lot of you are fake Christians. You know, they're just Ugh. yelling at these nine year old kids. They're like, a lot of you are good Christians when you're in church, and, and then yeah, then you go to school and you hang out with your friends, and, and you, you might not recognize the devil when he shows up because the devil might might seem pretty pretty attractive when he, <laughs> when he comes, and you might oh, and you're tricked and you're lost forever. I yeah, mean, that that's very scary. Anyway, so the film I do think has some you know, real strengths to it. But I think that the, the lack of uh, a clear kind of editorial point of view is something that, that really sticks out when you watch it. It does sort of have a, a soft editorial view that it's... It has this sort of horror movie music that plays It sometimes. has that, and then and then the beginning and end of the, ending of the film are bracketed by this kind of moderate Christian who has a talk show and is railing against, you know, the authoritarianism of the evangelical movement. So the film, if it has a thesis, is kind of like, you know, these people have, have hijacked American Christianity or something like that. But the director actually responded to some of the criticisms of, of, I guess, evangelism that the film inspired. And uh, she said, they're not doing anything illegal. And if you want to raise your children as liberal progressives to be amped up about environmentalism and being pro-choice, you can do that. Some of the arguments against the film were so knee-jerk, it made me realize the far left and the far right have a lot in common. Yeah, that's right. So that really bugs me that the kind of ultimate, because I think that kind of suggests the ultimate point of view in the film is very much a there's no the film doesn't have a radical critique of this it's very much just kind of the the shock value of it Mm -hmm. um and i think that is a limitation of it even though obviously there's a value to just you know showing uh showing what the film shows you but i it doesn't surprise me that the director the co-director has the you know the disappoint slightly disappointing politics well there's that scene at the end when becky fisher watches a rough cut of the movie we've just seen Mm -hmm. and she says to the filmmaker I bet liberals are watching this and just shaking on their boots right mm. now. And clearly, she hasn't seen SNL because she would be terrified. <laughs> yeah, because Alec Baldwin's got an impression of the president. Satire will save the republic. Yeah, but I think most liberals left this movie feeling sort of helpless and not sure what to do. You know, because like we're the ones who are right. Why are you know? And yet they've got this infrastructure. What are we gonna do? We're gonna we're gonna invest ourselves emotionally and politically and and financially in one charismatic figure every generation who's going to win an election and then uh, instantly capitulate and and, uh, issue a series of retreats, which is going to allow the Republican Party to take total control of the U.S. But don't worry, because it's actually a 24-dimensional game of chess. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You you lefties, you (laughs) you children, you just don't understand politics. (laughs) I uh, haven't got much to say. I just wanted to talk about belief in God and... I've had a hard time doing it, and it's just really hard to do this. Just, just to believe in God is really hard because you don't see Him. You don't, you don't really know Him much. Sometimes I don't even believe what the Bible says. So catching up on our friends from the film, one of them uh, who I don't think we've spoken about, I don't know if, you know if he's actually named in the movie, but he's, he's uh, if you've seen the film, he's kind of the little blonde one. And his name is uh, Andrew Summerkamp. And yes, that's his real that's name. That's his name? Wow. It's like summer, like S-O-M-M-E-R-K-A-M-P. So camp is in Camp Krusty. I don't, is it, I don't is it all one name? It's all one. Okay. It's all one word. So I don't know what the. Uh, I don't know what. Right. Well, God bless him. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so he uh, 
he actually says in the film at one point, uh, he says, I just want to talk about belief in God. I've been having a hard time with it. Anyways, yeah, I liked him. Yeah, so he, he actually, uh, he left the church, and the Guardian's write-up on him begins as follows. Ten years later, Summercamp, yes, that's his real name, has abandoned evangelical Christianity, living with a group of spiritual seekers in Mount Shasta, California. He split from the evangelical world when his father came out as gay. He spent several years angry at the church, but has since discovered peace in Eastern mysticism, quantum mechanics, and psychotropic drugs. Um, and there's a picture of him, and... Uh, I mean, yeah, he looks a lot different these days. He's wearing a, what looks like a tie-dye shirt, and he's, he has... Yeah, he's a cool hippie guy, and he's got uh, dreads, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Honestly, he looks a lot happier and more chilled out now. Good for him. Um, yeah. But what happened to my man, Levi? Uh-huh. You know, Levi, who's described by The Guardian, I think correctly, as having an unusually confident demeanor, is currently employed as a staff member at the World Revival Ministries. So he's, you know, okay. deep in the deep in the church... He says that people are often shocked that he's turned out to be a happy, healthy young man who wasn't traumatized by his experiences at Jesus Camp. I've been asked the same question hundreds of times by people from all over the world. Do you believe you are the way you are because of how you were raised, he says. Isn't everybody? And let's look at the outcome. I have peace in my mind. I have drive and purpose and character. Um, and he's, as of 2016, was engaged. There's a little picture of him here. If people... Uh, want to want to check out this article for themselves it's the kids of jesus camp 10 years later was it child abuse yes and no um that's uh in the guardian from from 2016 uh do we know what happened to becky fisher is she still out there or is he she had a a late conversion to atheism the guardian actually reached out to her but she declined to comment on the story although apparently she uh she wrote a memoir which was called jesus camp my story Uh, And she said that while the film was sensationalized and overly politicized, uh, the camp, uh, overall, she was satisfied with it. Um, And I'm not really surprised. Um, She actually helped promote it, apparently, through an evangelical PR company. Though that made her ministry a target of of opposition. Anyway, it sounds like she's probably very much the same person that she was in this film. Hey, uh, can I do a bit that I've been wanting to do on this episode? All right, listen to this. So Teller and I have been reading this book, The Bible. My favorite fiction book says that Jonah spent 40 days in the belly of a whale. Have you ever seen what the belly of a whale looks like? Jonah would have been destroyed by, I don't know, like stomach acid or whatever. Stomach acid. Teller and I say that the Bible is bullshit. That's my. You know, uh, we've been we've been trying to get more guests. We've been trying to get more guests, and you know, we had generic 90s comedian before, and. Uh, and then Big Get, late in the show, just walked into the studio, uh, Penn Gillette. Oh, and, and there he goes. He, he, he's a busy man, got a packed schedule, doing magic. He's, he's got a lot of cultural shibboleths to, to blow open. Before we were watching the movie, we were just uh, looking online at that church that Justin Bieber and other celebrities go to. What, what's it called again? Hillsong. Hillsong, and it's kind of this like cool uh, describe describe itself as a postmodern church and uh, but it, but it is like an evangelical church as so far as we can tell I, can i just like pause on the the postmodern does that mean that it it acknowledges that it, the religion is not real <laughs> <laughs> or is it what i actually think it is which is okay we're it, we're in modern times right now and postmodern means it's in the future i think what they're trying to say is that it's like it's punk Right. Like it's hip, it's cool, right. and and because if you normal churches we, get busy, well, this church gets busy. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, normal churches have music. Uh, we have Muzak. Right. Because um, we looked at their Instagram account, and it's like it's like a mega church meets kind of like Coachella or something. It looks fucking terrible. Right. And Bieber's been through here. Was it one of the Kardashians went there? Um, uh, lots of celebrities, famous people that you've heard of. You know, the, the aesthetic of the church is not a million miles removed from that other famous Hollywood sect, Scientology. Oh, yeah, which we got to do an episode on at some point. And I'm sure they serve kind of the same function, which is like they're basically like Tony Robbins self-help seminars. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would imagine that Hillside, is that what it's called? Hill Hillsong. Hillsong. I'm sure the Hillsong is just kind of there to say, you know what? God wants you to be rich. Well, I, I wondered, like, with Scientology, I've often wondered, is it serving a function? And maybe this is the same. Is it serving a function that's kind of similar, but for a smaller cast of society? Like, do celebrities need to have a group identity reproduced as well? Yeah. And it sort of seems like these churches, what they do, or like you know, Scientology or, or, or something like this, what they're primarily about is kind of supplying celebrities with that same kind of collective, you know, identity and kind of a sense that you are special, you yeah, know? Yeah, and you deserve to be rich and you deserve to be famous and all those all those other actors that you knew coming up whose auditions were rejected, they deserve to be rejected. I'm excited to... It re- wasn't just a fluke that turned you into Tom Cruise. Right, right. I'm excited to rewatch Going Clear, mainly so that I can see that scene of... Uh, where they, the Scientologist threw Tom Cruise his like birthday party on the boat, and you see him doing karaoke. That's <laughs> yeah. pure cinema. I guess Scientology also has kind of like a class system in it, too. Yeah. Like you ascend to various levels, and with each level you get to have more slaves. Right, and the, and the more money you have, like because it just costs money, right? Yeah. So you can just buy your way up the ladder, basically, up to all the way up to OT10. Yeah, I, I am interested in talking about Scientology more, partly because it's interesting how Scientology's luster has faded in recent years. Well, it was another one of these things. Um, I mean, I guess we should save some of this for the actual Scientology episode, but it was another one of these things that I think was a quintessentially mid-2000s cultural boogeyman, and it has yeah. kind of receded. They said... So, but have you met an SP? (laughs) I looked at them, you know, and I thought, what a beautiful thing, because maybe one day it'll be like that. You know what I'm saying? Maybe one day it will be that. Wow, SPs, like, they'll just read about those in the history books, you know? (laughs) Folks, this is the part of the show where we do the plugs. Uh, we're not very good at this. Um, we, but, we forget to do it a lot of the time. But you know, we're getting better every day in every way, better and better. Last week on the Patreon, we talked about uh, Dennis Miller's new comedy special. It was very funny. <laughs> yeah, if you want some laughs. And, uh, you know, if, let's just say that if you're a lib, you might get a little bit triggered. Uh, there have been other Patreon episodes, too, which I'm forgetting. Paths of Glory Paths was another, of Glory was another yeah. good one. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. I, I think for a long time we were so bad at plugging the Patreon that some people didn't actually realize that was an option. But there is... I'm sure they figured it out by now. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, we, as we occasionally remember to say, if you kind of can't get enough of the show and you want more content and you're not subscribed to the Patreon, uh, you can give us uh, $5 a month. You can join the, uh, the Al Gore 
uh, level of support. The only one currently in existence, although I hope to soon introduce the Lieberman and Kasich uh, tiers. Uh, much like Scientology, we're building our own uh, ladder of truth at the top. I don't know who will be at the top. Uh, seems to me that spot should 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 have already been reserved for uh, Mr. Gore himself, but I guess we fucked up there. No, no, no. It's because people actually got to vote for Al Gore. <laughs> but, you know, John Kasich didn't have his chance. In, in the, so he's a rarer commodity. Did, did you see, to, to interrupt our, our business for a second, did you see the... Uh, the article today that was arguing for a uh, a Biden Romney unity ticket. Well, in I, I saw that the author was a former advisor to I think George W. Bush oh, and uh, you know various other Republican presidents and candidates, and she serves on the board of directors for some Joe Biden related Ugh, organization or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good stuff. So, so obviously somebody who, you know, is just an impartial observer, no vested <laughs> interest in any of this. I, I like, I like that genre of article that'll be published by like the Hill or something. <laughs> It'll be like Dems risking it big by, by turning left uh, strategist. And then you, you just read the article and it's like some garbage or whatever. And then you scroll to the bottom and it's like, uh, so-and-so served as a, you know, speech writer to Barack Obama, you know, deputy communications director for vice president Joe Biden and is now, a. Uh, you know, uh, honorary vice chair at the uh, the John Edwards Institute for you know bipartisan reforms <laughs> or something, and like, and also also sits on the board of a you know hedge fund that cheats old people out of their pensions or something. Uh, you were also cheating on me with other podcasts <laughs> this week, right? I uh, I went on. I made my second appearance on uh, Trash Future, which I know we have a few British listeners, so maybe they'll be familiar with it. But it's a it's a fun uh, you know kind of British dirtbag left podcast. It's you know like ours kind of a comedy politics podcast i think those guys are are very funny so uh check them out and if you want to hear me uh just go to their podcast feed trash future and check out their patreon and i'll be performing this week at the chuckle factory at the laugh orgy will will be will uh, be performing at the hollywood bowl at the uh, joke back and owl <laughs> at uh, chuckle fox at uh at uh i can't come up with any other ones <laughs> Another thing we forget to ask, uh, but which is actually probably the most helpful thing of all, is uh, if you're using a podcast app, if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud or anything, uh, usually there's some kind of little rating mechanism or kind of a like button. Uh, If you could Pokemon Go and smash that right now, we would appreciate it. I don't really understand how internet algorithms work. But I think that's kind of what allows people assure other... us that they yeah. do work. Yeah, there there are some the people algorithms that... never fail. If it... That's something we've learned in all our years. Yeah, yeah. There are some people that have told us that's how they found the podcast. So uh, in the most earnest terms, smash that like button so other people can enjoy uh, Michael Moore irony content too. And until next time, watch this drive. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance You may be the heavyweight champion of the world You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Might be rock and roll at it, prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a devil and women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. 
They may call you doctor, or they may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, yeah, sure, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper, you might be a young tuck, you may be the head of some big TV network, you may be rich or poor, maybe blind or lame, you may be living in another country. Under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Might be a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion, you might live in a dome. You may own guns, and you may even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord, you may even own tanks, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be. The Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with a spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve some. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey. Might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-size bed, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may call me, you may call me Terry, you may call me Timmy, you may call me Bobby, you may call me Zimmy, you may call me RJ, you may call me Ray, you may call me anything, no matter what you say, you're still gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody.